Hey, I want to uh, fill you guys in on something this morning uh, that I came across, uh, I don't know, sometime in the last couple weeks, but I want to explain to you how a joke works, all right? So there's a comedian that's uh, one of my favorites that I listen to frequently, and um, he ha- kind of has this explanation of how a joke works. And so what he says is, comedy happens when an audience is moving in one direction, And so he says that a good comedian will use all of their talents, gifts, abilities, the room, the space they're in, all of these things to work to his advantage to lead the entire audience in the same direction. And then you change that direction in a way that you weren't expecting. So this is called the punchline. So now when you hear comedy, or for those of you who are not funny at all, maybe this will help you be funny once in a while you might understand uh, how comedy works now. So the punchline is delivered, and when you catch it, and not everyone catches it, some people catch it at a different time, but when you finally catch the punchline that you've received, it results in spontaneous laughter. So could you practice with me for a moment some spontaneous laughter? Ready, set, go. (laughs) All right, now the reason I had you practice this is because I am about to tell you a joke. And now you know how to laugh, even if you think it's not funny. My favorite types of jokes, of course, are dad jokes. And so for those of you who don't know me, I have five kids, and so that means that my dad jokes are five times worse. So my family and I were driving in the vehicle the other day, and so we saw this right here. We saw a trailer um, there, and so I said, hey, kids, look at the horses. They're just hanging out. See, when you catch it, when you catch it, that's how comedy works right there. So comedy is kind of the uh, humorous uh, part or uh, the humor part of what we might also know as an epiphany. And if you're like a super spiritual Christian, you might call it a revelation or something like that, right? But an epiphany is an experience of a sudden or striking realization about something. It's a moment in which you thought things were one way, but really it's another. You were tracking in one direction and you you were moving in one direction when suddenly everything was different. You thought something was one way, but in reality it's another way. And I think there's something that we have adopted as a culture as a whole, the world that we live in, And certainly when it comes to uh, our faith and religion, we have adopted this idea. But we live in a world where we have created a measuring stick that is in this life that has become getting as close to perfect as possible. How close can we get to perfect? The measuring stick of our lives has become getting as close to perfect as we can. We filter everything. We filter everything. We filter every text before we send it so we can elicit the accurate and most uh, uh, well-received promise of that text that will return to us, right? Like we want to make sure we craft it in a certain way so that we get a certain response back. So we filter it, filter it, filter it, then we send it. Sometimes we send it before we filter it and we wish we hadn't sent it and we wish we could take it back and we send another. I mean, what I meant was, you know, and we try to do it again and we filter every picture, every post, everything that we come across in life. We, we post our family pictures and print them on canvases and putting them in the house, but we uh, do not ever tell the story 
of all the yelling, kicking, and screaming that led up to that very same picture just moments before. Because we are filtered, we're trying to get to a concept and a reality and attain this idea of perfect, because after all, perfect is the goal. It's what we're trying to get to. And so we come to our faith, we come to our finances, we come to our relationships in life, we come to the circumstances that surround us, and we're constantly on this journey to create perfect in our life. But the reality is that we know and we are intimately acquainted with the imperfections of our life. And so some of these imperfections are kind of laid out for us in these things that we come up against in life in Galatians chapter 5. And it says the acts of the flesh. In other words, the flesh is that which is outside of the intended way of God. It's not just skin and bones, but it's the way that we live in a reality that is in and of ourselves apart from God. So when we live in the flesh and we act out of our flesh and we pursue the flesh, the acts of the flesh flesh are completely obvious. So I want you to think about your life as I think about mine and we think about the culture that we live in. It's full of sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, and fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. And so there's a, there's a really great uh, kind of paraphrase of this verse, and it actually is much more descriptive and uh, actually close, more closely related to what this would have said in its intended original language. In the English language, we take all of these uh, many words that were described and we kind of put them into like single words, and so the actual list is much longer. And this is a really good paraphrase that I want to read you, but it says, It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Out of trying to get your own way all the time. It's repetitive. It's loveless. It's uh, cheap sex. It's stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Does this sound like anybody else's life so far? <laughs> Frenzied with joyless grabs for happiness. Just trying to get whatever we can to fill the happiness void that we have in our life. It's trinket gods. It's magic show religion. It's paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition. It's an all-consuming yet never satisfies what it wants. A brutal temper, an impotence for being able to love or to love others, inability to be able to love or to be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, a vicious habit of depersonalizing others into rivals. I think we're pretty good at that one. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable actions. Why did I do that? I don't understand. I can't believe he did that again. What's wrong with him? Uncontrollable actions. Ugly parodies of community. It's fake. Nothing real there. And he says, I could go on and on and on. I've presented to you in it. Not quite an exhaustive list. I could continue, but there's a whole bunch of them just in case any single one of those might have missed you. The next one won't miss you, right? We are highly aware in our world of the imperfect life that we live. We are highly aware in our world of the imperfections that we experience on a day-to-day basis. The things in this life that come into our life that we didn't expect that are so far from perfect. But isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal that we could somehow go back to the very beginning where 
God created everything and he looked and he said, it is good. And things were perfect. And things in the world were right. And things were good. And things were whole. That's how God created it. So, so shouldn't we be trying to pursue perfect? Shouldn't we try to make things right again where we can live up to this standard that he has set before us of perfection? And so we try and we try and we try. The trouble with the idea of perfect being the goal. This road that we're all traveling on, we're trying to make our circumstances perfect and right. They're not quite good enough. We're trying to make our relationships right, but they're not quite good enough. Something is missing and things are not good there. We're constantly trying to come up with new ways of filling voids in our lives. And as soon as I get this or attain this or pursue this, and once I get that, then things will be right and closer toward perfect because perfect is the goal. The trouble with perfect is when we pursue perfection as the goal, we begin to see God as a commander giving us orders. Many of us approach our life that way and our relationship with Christ is nothing more than he gives us orders and we try to follow them. And we say a lot of things like, I know I should be doing fill in the blank. Oh, I know, I know I'm supposed to and then fill in the blank. As if God is up there giving us commands to be followed and we have to be down here saying, yes, sir. I'll try. I'll try to do that. I, I know what I should do. And then we say something again like, but nobody's perfect. I mean, nobody, nobody as, if, as if perfect was the goal, as if perfect was the standard. And I'm not measuring up, and so I make myself feel a little bit better because uh, nobody else is perfect either. And I know that's the goal, but nobody lives up to perfect, and that's the goal, and I'm missing it. But God is this commander. I know he has all these things, and I'm supposed to do this. And I remember growing up as a teenager, and it was like, you can't listen to this. You can't watch that. You can't go here. You can't go there. Don't ever be caught doing that. And like, there's this whole list of stuff. And as a teenager, especially, I'm just like frantically trying to please God through my behavior and by trying to do everything all right. Because after all, the standard and the goal, I don't want to miss the mark. I don't want to mess it up. I have to live up to this standard of perfection that he has given me. And so we begin when we go down the path, when we're all traveling the path, that perfection is the goal. We begin to see God as nothing more than a commander who must be obeyed. His rules must be followed. I, I should do this and I should do that, but I know I don't. But after all, nobody's perfect. When perfection is the goal, we have a way of shaping our belief system to say that God's will is my will. That means that if I want my circumstances to be better in life, then that must mean that God wants my circumstances to be better too. I mean, after all, he didn't create sickness. He didn't create death. He didn't want any of this stuff. So when I get sick, it must be his desire and his will to heal me. It must be, of course. When I'm going through a difficult time and I'm struggling financially and I'm not sure where to go or where to turn, when my relationships seem to be falling apart, when my children are gone off the rails and I don't understand why and how they could ever do what they're doing, it must be then God's will because if my desire is for this, this, and this to happen, then it must be his desire too. And so our relationship with God, when perfection is the goal, becomes us warping our theology and our way of living and understanding God to believe that he must also want what we want because after all of course I'm the best person to know what's best for me right how's that ever worked out for you pretty much never works out for me when I'm the one to choose what I think is best for me in any given moment in time 
but we warp our view of God, and so God doesn't answer our prayer. God doesn't give us what we want. What does that say about God? Is he not all-powerful? Is he not all-loving? Is he not a God who can actually do anything? Because Sunday school taught me that my God is so big and my God is so strong, there's nothing my God cannot do. And I sang the song as a little kid in Sunday school over and over and over and over again. But I come to work now as a 35-year-old with teenagers who we've taught that God is so big and He is so strong, there's nothing He cannot do except fix your parents' marriage. I mean, I know they fight all the time. I I know they're at each other all the time. I know that you come home every day and you wonder how they can say that they love you, but it doesn't seem like they love each other anymore. And you constantly deal with this and battle with this. And and my God is so big and so strong, but but He's not quite strong enough to fix your parents' marriage. I'm sorry. He's, He's not quite strong enough to get you into the college or the university of your choice. He's not quite strong enough to get you that promotion that would just bump you up just enough so that you could feel financially secure and stable once again. He's, he's so big and he's so strong, but, but I know he's not, he's not quite strong enough to, to reach into the life of your spouse and change their heart in a different way that your relationship can be restored and reconciled to one another again. I mean, he's so big and he's so strong, but just, just not quite that strong because we develop this idea and this theology that says his will must be the same as my will. And so if he doesn't accomplish my will, then is he really God? And people walk away from the church all the time, every day because of unanswered prayers. It's the toxic contaminant of believing that perfection is the goal. My life working out the way I think it's supposed to and God being on the same page with me must be the goal. So what happens? When it seems like his goals are not in alignment with mine. Doesn't God want good for me? Doesn't he want, these, doesn't he want my life to be a little closer to perfect? When perfection is the goal, we live in constant disappointment. We live in disappointment because we want what we want. And we go after the things in life that we can see in front of us. And we, we have these things in life that we just wish were different. We often go throughout our, I just, I just wish, if, if only this could be different, then things would be okay. If only this breakthrough could happen for me, then all things would be right with the world for at least 24 hours until the next thing happens, and then the next thing happens, and then the next thing. There will always be trouble in this world and in this life, and yet, we constantly go to the next thing and the next event and the next raise and the next relationship and the next new house and the next new job and the next new boat and the next new vacation. We constantly go to all these things that we chase to try to fill a void and it leaves us disappointed because we get the new shoes and we feel good and we feel confident wearing them and then they get dirty. And two weeks later, we need a new pair of shoes so we can feel good about ourselves walking down the street again. Everything new that we think is filling a void gets old, it gets tired, it gets worn out. The money that we thought we had in retirement can disappear like that. The job we think we're going to on Monday can get shut down just like that. We fill our lives full of these things that only lead to disappointment when we're trying to simply pursue the path of perfect. How much of our day is spent wondering why, how, and when? How much of our day is spent, why did this happen God, why did you let this happen? I didn't see this coming. Not in our home. This doesn't happen to us. It happens to other people. Why? 
conversations with our spouse, with our kids. How could you do this? How could you do this to me? How could you let this happen? God, how could you let this happen? When? When are things ever going to get better? When are things ever going to change? At dinner with my parents not too long ago at their house, and I don't know if my dad read this somewhere or if he said it himself, but he said there comes a point in time in your relationship, God, when you no longer need to ask questions. And it's kind of a confusing thing because on one hand, it's kind of like, so, so I just have blind faith and I never ask any questions and I never seek to understand God or like you just want me to have just blind faith all the time. And yet, is it really any better in the other direction? Don't we continually, we get married, we think that's going to be the trick and then our marriage doesn't work out very well. We get a job, we think that's going to fix things and then the job doesn't work out the way we thought. We're constantly filling the voids of our life and the gaps of our life with this path to perfection and it still only leads us asking these questions that we have no answers to why how and when when is this going to get any better what is the point at the end of pursuing the path of perfection we're left all roads lead to nowhere what what was the point in this what was the point in trying to obey God and follow all the rules? Because after all, I, I'm not perfect and I can't do it anyway. I messed it up and I said I would never do that again. I said I would never pick up this habit again. I said I would never go there again and yet I did it anyway. I lost my temper again. I know I'm supposed to be gentle and I'm supposed to be full of the Spirit and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I know, but I'm not and I have to try really hard again and I still mess up. I mean... What's the point in trying to figure out how I can get so close to perfection and have just the ideal image in my life, the, the ideal marriage and the ideal picture and the ideal career? And what is the point in a world where God can create anything? In a world where God can do anything? Why didn't he just create a world that was perfect? What if perfection was never the goal? Why did God create a world where suffering was even allowed? In a world where God could do anything he wanted. Why? Why did he create a world where sin could come in and mess things up so badly? Why did he create a world where we can get diagnosed with diseases that we never are healed from on this earth? Why did he even make it possible for people to be selfish and insecure and self-centered. I don't understand. If God could do anything and he's so big and there's nothing he can't do, why didn't he create a world like this? In a world where God create anything? Here's the punchline. We're all headed in one direction to believe and think and exist for the path of perfection and get as close to perfection as possible. But what if perfection was never the goal at all? The punchline is this. Relationship was the goal. Relationship is the goal. It was never about living in a land of utopia where everything was perfect and right and everything was right with the world at all given times. There was never any sickness. There was never any, any uh, mishaps. There was never any pain and suffering and trial and strife that came into our life. The goal was never that. It was always relationship. Here's how we know this, because relationship, where there's relationship, there has to be free will. There has to be free will. You cannot have intimate relationship 
with someone else outside of that person having free will. So in a world where God could do anything, he created a world where we could exist in relationship, true, intimate, meaningful relationship with him and others. He could not create a world where sin was not possible. He could not create a world where things did not have the opportunity to go wrong and for trouble to come into this world, but that wasn't the goal. He could not create a world like that because if he did, then he could not have relationship with us. So in a world where God can do anything, he did it. He chose to have relationship with us. He could have created anything he wanted, but he chose to have relationship with us. And so we see sickness, suffering, pain, and trouble in this world because in order for relationship to exist, free will has to exist. And wherever there's free will, you'll always find trouble. Wherever, these, wherever there's free will, we'll always find trouble. So the fact that there is trouble in this world, the fact that there is sickness in this world, the fact that there is death in this life, the fact that things come our way that we can't handle on our own, the fact that we can never live up and attain the perfect standard of God, the fact that we can do this speaks to the very reality that he intended relationship for me all along because I can choose him. I can choose to respond to who he is in my life. I can have intimate, meaningful, deep relationship with him. That was the goal. Relationship is the language of love. And in the most popular verse in every bathroom stall from here to Florida, you will see the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave who? Let's have Christmas for a minute here in June. For unto you a child will be born, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. In a world where he could create whatever he wanted, in a world where he could have just blotted out every negative thing that's ever come our way, where he could answer every prayer to heal us, where he could answer every prayer that we desired for ourselves for financial prosperity and security, He said, I'm going to do you one better because the goal is not for you to live a perfect life. The goal is not for you to experience perfect circumstances. The goal is that I might have relationship with you and I'm going to show it in the most deep, meaningful way that I possibly can and I am going to come to be with you in the middle of this messed up life, in the middle of this troublesome world, in the middle of things that do not go the way that we want them to go. Relationship then becomes God with us, and it's how we understand and experience the love of God. We understand and experience the love of God through his relationship with us, and we miss it if we're on the path to perfection. What if the goal was really never about things being perfect, things looking perfect, things being perfect in our lives, our circumstances being exactly the way we wanted them to be? What if the goal was relationship? If we go back several verses in Galatians 5, we already read the massive list there of all the things that you and I are intimately acquainted with in this life, all the things that are not good, all the things that are not great. And Paul Uh, says this back in verse 13 it says you my brothers and sisters you are called to live free but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh but rather serve one another humbly in love did you catch the punchline i mean we're moving in one direction 
Don't indulge in the flesh, all the stuff, all the things, all the bad things in life that come our way. Don't, in, don't engage and don't involve yourself with these things that are not perfect. Doesn't it seem like the next instruction would be, so stop being sexually immoral. So stop being self-centered. So stop doing the bad stuff. I mean, it seems like it should read, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, but rather make sure that you read your Bible every single day so that you know all the bad things to not do anymore. So that you can get really, really acquainted with all the things that you should do, all the things that you're supposed to do, and just do those things. But rather, the punchline is a relationship. Instead of pursuing all of these things and living in freedom to just do what you want all the time, which actually brings death into your life, rather serve one another humbly in love. Allow relationships in your life to be the way that our faith is expressed. In fact, two verses later, we don't have it on the screen, but it says what's most important is not whether you follow the law and keep all the commands. What's most important is that we express our faith in love because true faith is a relationship with jesus true faith is not church attendance true faith is not doing all the right things true faith is living in a relationship where we are able to understand and experience god's love you go all the way back to the beginning of this and it says it is for freedom that christ has set us free From the very start of chapter 5 in the whole book of Galatians is speaking to this idea that this is about relationship and it's getting rid of the concepts of us trying to pursue perfection. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again to the yoke of slavery. What is the yoke of slavery? The yoke of slavery is the yoke of trying to do it all right trying to pretend that the standard is being perfect. And it says, mark my words, Paul's saying this, mark my words. I, Paul, I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, circumcision was the ultimate expression of trying to make things right from the outside in, the complete opposite of the song we sang a few moments ago. It was the ultimate expression and adoption that someone would receive into their lives to say, my view of God has everything to do with what I can do on the outside and what my outside circumstance looks like and what my outside behaviors look like. He's saying, do not adopt this thinking. Do not adopt this way of living. If you do, Christ will be of no value to you because the reason he came was because of our imperfection. Because we cannot live this way, because we cannot live up to this standard, because things will never be right in our world around us. So stop trying to get there because Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated, that he 
is obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, if you're going to try to say that I'm going to try to get right with God, I'm going to try to make my life perfect, I'm going to pursue the path of perfection, then go ahead and you have to obey all of it. And his audience at this time would have known that there were 610 different laws that they would have had to then follow, and you can't ever mess one up. And not only that, but they would have known the teaching of Jesus, which said it's not about the outside, but it's about the inside. So not only do I have to keep the 610 laws, but I also have to make sure that the internal desires, modifications, justifications, all of these things inside of me also have to be completely lined up with the will of God at any given time. So he's saying, if you want to pursue the path of perfection and try to get everything in your world to look right, you have no use for Christ at all. Just don't even worry about it. Don't even try it because then you're subject to trying to follow the whole law at all. And then all of your hope is built on everything in life circumstances working out in your favor because after all, I'm shaping my will and my desires to believe that God's will lines up with my will. You are trying to be justified by the law having been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And what is grace? Grace is salvation. Salvation is received by grace through faith. You've, you've lost what this is really all about in the first place. You've fallen completely away from it. You've been alienated from the very Christ that you claim to serve. And it sounds a lot like what John, what was revealed to John. And he wrote and was instructed to write on behalf of Jesus to his church. Here's what he told John to pen. I know your works. He's speaking to the church. I know your works, your labor. I know you're trying really hard to do what you should do and what you're supposed to do. And that you can't even bear those who are evil. We're pretty good at that too. We're really good at making sure we're pointing out all the evil around us. We can do that. That you have tested those who say they're apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and you have labored for my name's sake. And he's about to correct them, but I think it's interesting to think about the tone of God here because he wants deep, intimate relationship with them. He's not just completely slamming them, he's saying, I, I get it. It's, it's important to be truth-tellers. It's important to recognize evil for evil and what it is. That these things are important. And I, and I get this. I know your heart. And I know your heart of patience and perseverance. But, but he goes on to say, there's one thing that I hold against you. And it's actually the most important thing. It's actually the thing that will end up separating you from me. And even though you're doing these things in my name. And even though you're approaching these things in the name of God and his will and on his behalf. There's one thing I'm holding against you because it is the foundational thing that must start first. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first relationship. Relationship word. You have left your first love. You've stepped outside of the goal that I had for you. You've stepped outside and you've left and you've fallen away from what I desired and wanted so much all along you've left your first love remember therefore where you have fallen repent what is repentance very similar to a punchline you're moving in one direction and it's a turning in the opposite direction that's what the word repentance means 
I've been heading in one direction. I've been thinking in one direction. I've been operating along and walking along one path, and I'm going to completely turn my direction. And he says, repent and do the first works. Do what you did in the first place. Love me. Be in relationship with me. Or else... I will come to you quickly and I will remove your lampstand. There were seven lampstands and Jesus was standing in the middle in this vision that John had. Jesus came in and there were seven lampstands which represented seven churches and this was one of the seven churches. And he said, if if you're busy doing all of these things in my name, if you're busy making sure that you're laboring and you're toiling and you're calling out evil and you're doing these things, but you've stepped away from your relationship with me, I will remove the lampstand from its place, because this is the core, this is the root, this is the substance that everything else is built upon, unless you repent and turn from your ways. Jesus has already said something very similar to this once before, because Jesus knew that this was coming. Jesus knew how easy it would be for all of us to pursue the path of perfection. And so, during his Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The will of his Father is to love God and to love others. That's what Jesus came to reveal. Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? I mean, how is it possible that we can do all of these wonderful works, and in fact God can actually use someone who apparently doesn't even know him, as we'll see in a minute. Isn't that crazy? God can use somebody who doesn't even know him to bring about freedom in the life of somebody else, because he's God, because he's about relationship with people, and he'll use people that don't even know him sometimes to bring about a situation in our life that might actually bring us freedom and wholeness, wellness. But he says, how... How can you do all of these things in my name? And some will come to me and say, we've done this and we've done this and we've done this and we've done this. I've checked all the boxes. I've done all the could do's and should do's and and have to's. And I've done all of these things. And we've even done even more supernatural things than that. Some really cool stuff. I mean, demons. We've cast them out. We've done wonderful, mighty works. And yet, I will declare to them, I never knew you. We didn't even know each other like that. You're saying you want eternal relationship with me and you've done all these things in my name. You can do all the things and still walk away with him saying, we didn't know each other. What if the measuring stick of life became how close we can get to Jesus? Not how close we can get to perfect, but how close can we get to Jesus? I was reminded of James 4, and it says, draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. And for me, I always filled in all the blanks for myself about how to get close to God. And it was mostly a big, long list of all the stuff I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I read my Bible so I can get close to Jesus. I got to show up to church. I got to give some money i got to do the right things because I'm drawing close to him. And if I do that, come on, Jesus, you come close to me too? I'm nobody to call this a bad translation. I just think it's kind of incomplete. Because when you look up the word, draw close to him and he will draw close to you, it actually means a joining together. 
Join together with him and he will join together with you. How can you link arms and join together with someone who's not already standing right next to you? When you put that up against the context of other places in Scripture that say things like, Behold, listen up, I've got to tell you something. Behold, I, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. For those that feel far away from God, it's not true. It is not possible for you to be far away from God because he stands at the very door of your heart and he knocks. Will you let me in? I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be with you. My very name, Emmanuel, means that I came to be with you. I want to be with you. I know your life is not good right now. I know there are things in your life that you wish were different. I know that you've been trying really hard. I know that you've been doing all the right things and saying all the right things and doing your very best to make sure that you could be right with me, but you're missing one thing. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to be with you. It's relationship over perfection. When relationship is the goal, we no longer see God as the commander with orders to be followed, but we see him as a savior throwing us a lifeline. His laws and his decrees are no longer, here's the list of stuff, I want you to go follow the list of stuff, but rather it's, I want to save you from yourself. I want to save you for eternity. I want to bring about something in your life that is so much bigger than what you see in front of you on this earth. In Romans, Paul tries to explain to us what the law of God really is about. And he says, when God's law was given, it was given so that people could see how sinful they were. In other words, he was trying to explain what was already taking place. Sin in our life is not just breaking a rule that God gave us and now he is not pleased with us anymore. Sin is something that existed before there were any rules to break. In fact, his law was given to us out of his grace. And his grace became more abundant to us because now he's showing us what is hurting us so badly. He's explaining to us what brings about murder and strife and jealousy and anger and insecurity and loneliness and fear and sickness. He's explaining to us, he's revealing to us what's there all along out of his grace and love for us. So, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, the wages of sin, the wages of these things that are already happening, the wages of the life that we live in this life, in the flesh, for these hundred years that we might walk the earth, the wages of the sin in our life lead to death. But now God's wonderful grace rules Instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life. Not just resulting in life where someday this life will be over and we'll all fly away and we can go to heaven and be with him. Our eternal life starts now. Our eternal life has already been made brand new right now. I don't die. I have eternal life with Christ and it starts right now and now and now because I'm in relationship with him and that relationship never ends. It's eternal. And so through sickness and through death and through financial troubles and through relational turmoil and through all the circumstances that hit me in life, I have eternal life now in the midst of that through Jesus Christ who came to be Emmanuel, God with us. When perfection is the goal. 
we shape our belief system to think that God's will is our will, but when relationship is the goal, we have a belief system to say that God's will is to be with me. In other words, my faith becomes a lot less about what he can do for me. My faith becomes a lot less about having faith in what God can do and more about faith in him. Not just what he can do for me. John 14 says it like this. Jesus was speaking to a group of people and he said, don't let your, don't let your hearts be troubled. I, I know there's trouble here. I know there's stuff that's happening. Don't let it be troubled, but I want you to trust in God and trust also in me because I am the one who wants to be in relationship with you in the midst of your trouble. When relationship is the goal, we no longer live in disappointment, but we live in contentment. We live in contentment. It no longer becomes about wishing and wishing and wishing for something better. Wishing that things would change. Wishing that things would be different. Wishing that so-and-so would... would figure things out so that I could be happy again. But we become content with where we are because it's not about perfect, it's about being present with Jesus in every moment. It's about the fact that he is with me through this life. It's about the fact that he is with me for eternity and I am with him. We go back to Romans 5, where we see that the law was only given, the rules were given as a lifeline to us, as, a, as, a act, as an act of grace to us. And it says, since our friendship with God was restored. What? I, th- I thought he came to restore like all the bad stuff and take it all away. No, what was lost in the very beginning was not perfection. What was lost in the beginning was not the fact that there are bad things in this life now. What was lost in the beginning was that Adam and Eve stepped outside of the fullness and the intimate relationship that they had with God himself. That is what he came to restore for us. There will always be trouble in this world. There will always be things in this world that are just not right. But he didn't come to fix all of that stuff. What he came to restore was a friendship with God through the death of his son while we were still enemies, while we were still doing the bad stuff, while we were still experiencing and living in the things that plague us. So we certainly can be saved through the life of his son. So now we rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. As we prepare to receive communion, I have three questions for you that we're going to put on the screen for us to contemplate, to consider, and think through. And some of you during during the uh, uh, pandemic and all of that uh, have liked the fact that those of you who have been here before have liked the fact that we've been able to be in our in our seats and we have a little communion cup there for you and you can kind of have that moment to yourself. Others of you kind of miss the idea of coming up here as as family and we we have a line together and we do this together and then some of you maybe make your way up here and pray. I want you to know that in a couple weeks from now we're going to be offering both ways and that way you can do that. But I think at least for this week for this moment. I really like the fact that we're kind of in our seats. And I want you, as Josh is playing for a few moments, to just have a few minutes to contemplate and to examine 
your heart before God? And could we ask ourselves these questions as we receive communion individually? Have I been trying to please God through my behavior? Do I find myself saying things like, I'm not perfect, and I know I should do that, and I know I should do this, and I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not doing it? Maybe God in your heart right now wants to change your perspective. Maybe he wants to throw you a punchline that says, I'm not giving you orders to follow. I'm giving you a lifeline to grab a hold of because my life leads to freedom. My way leads to freedom. I'm offering you a way to be free to love your wife like not many people have. I'm offering you a way to be free to living into being existing and leaning hard on an addiction in order to get through another day. I'm offering you a way to be free from believing that other things can fulfill your life in a way that only He can. I'm offering you a way to live free. It's not about behavior. Is my faith centered in God or what God can do? Does my prayer life mostly consist of my request and wanting God to heal and to come through and to save and to change my circumstance? Or is it more about who He wants to be in me in the middle of that circumstance? Do I mostly wish for what could be in life instead of embracing what is? He's with you. We miss out on the moments of life. We miss out on God in the midst of our circumstance when we're constantly looking toward what we wish could be. Maybe someday, if this would only get better, if this would only change. So, as we contemplate these questions, as we ask God to speak to our hearts as we ask him to change us and transform us to restore our friendship with him we can do it with an attitude of celebration that it's through christ and it's through his sacrifice which is what we remember as we receive communion it's through his death burial and resurrection where he overcame the trouble of this world he overcame the things in this life that plague us so that we could have eternal life that starts right now Father, I pray that you would speak to us over the next few moments, that we would truly celebrate this moment to know that you have made a way for us to be free. We thank you for that. We thank you for speaking to our heart and to to speaking truth into our life where it can cause us to change. Thank you for your love for us, your extravagant love for us and your relationship that causes us to be different and move forward and move closer into a more deep and intimate relationship with you. I pray that you would do that in all of our hearts over the next few moments.